Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is author Jessica George, who writes under the pen name J.L. George. She lives in Cardiff, Wales, and writes weird and speculative fiction. She also writes contemporary urban fantasy as Louise Long. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, actually, we're having you back now because you were on the podcast uh, when we were at the awards workshop week uh, back in April of yeah. 2022. So this time it's just you and me instead of all the UK winners. Yes. Yeah. No cushion. Oh, yes. So I will obviously want to discuss the book, um, The Word, and how it came to be. But I'd also like to address yeah. the use of dystopian theme to convey a cautionary tale of what to avoid. So now there have been various incarnations of the word. The, yes. So it started life um, as a kind of 12,000-ish word novelette, yeah. um, which I entered for the New Welsh Writing Awards in 2019. Um, and they, they do generally focus on short form writing. So it won the, the first place for that. Um, which is amazing. I just writers. wanted to congratulate yeah. you for that. But make sure I had it straight. Oh. That was like, that was in 2019, right, that you won that award. Yes, it was. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so it won one of the two prizes which were formed part of that year's New Welsh Writing Awards, which was the Aberystwyth University Award for a Dystopian Novella. And part of the prize for that was publication with New Welsh Rare Bites, which is the publishing arm of the New Welsh Review. Right. And so kind of about a year later, when they were getting ready to publish, Gwen, who was the editor, got in touch with me sort of saying, do you have any other stories that we could add to make a bit of a, to pat it out, make a bit of a longer collection? And that happened to be, after the first COVID lockdown, which I had spent writing a continuation of the words, prompted by a comment made in um, in a critique um, by the agent Catherine Summerhays. And so I sort of got back to her and said, well, I don't have any short stories you could have at this point, but I do have another 70,000 words <laughs> on the, in the same world. Yeah. So uh, we can put that together and make a novel. Yeah, Which is amazing. It was like... Um... Because I didn't read your um, shorter version of the word, but it was it was interesting on your book, uh, the word. And we're also, gonna, I mean, we'll be asking on this interview questions that are a little bit maybe different than normally when you talk about a book. Because we're going to talk about the book, but I also talk about you know what went into it and how you came to be. Because a lot of the audience on this are aspiring writers, so they can get some inspiration from yourself and what to do. Because it's it's a very popular genre, has been for some years, the whole idea of dystopian science fiction. So what was the inspiration? Obviously, you've got the UK having broken from the EU, or at least that's what it seems to be as mm -hmm. a, a basis. But I don't know if that's the basis or something else was the basis that started it. Well, yeah, absolutely. That was one thing that went into it. It would be disingenuous to present to pretend that uh, Brexit didn't have anything to do with yeah. it. Um, kind of after um, quite a long period, really, of kind of anti-immigrant sentiment being whipped up in the tabloid press, um, and which I think was something that really contributed mm -hmm. to to people voting for Brexit, which uh, you may or may not agree with, but I 
have to say I certainly don't. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So then on this, yeah. so then, cause you're very, you know, it's, I guess this is like, well, it is near future, but it's also maybe it's, it's gone more than just what happened on the, on the Brexit, what was done, but the disinformation that goes on there, because when the kids make it to France and the, the officer laughs when they said we're enemies, you know, it's, it's like, it seems like it's something that's fomented, fomented within the UK. So anything on there, like the use of, of what you're telling the story here, more than just the fact of Brexit, but just in general, what happens on, I guess, social media, because they're saying now that, that their computers are, are bad because they give you, you get radiation poisoning and planes are bad and all this stuff that people buy into. Yeah. So um, I guess partly that side of it was, um, as, as you probably guess, is um, inspired by 1984 by George Orwell, sure. where um, kind of the UK is at, or Ingsoc, as it is in the book, I think, is at war with one country, and then suddenly, in the space of a minute, it's changed, and they're at war with someone else. So, yeah, kind of the idea of using that propaganda to control the populace kind of came partly from that. And um, then, obviously, George Orwell was writing in a very different world from the one I am. Everyone is connected now. We can go onto the internet and find out what's happening all over the world. So I needed to kind of find a way to work that in, um, in terms of people having the information withheld for, from them uh, and not being able to connect with people all around the world um, and kind of the scaremongering around technology which uh, is something that we often see in real life as well, or things like 4G, 5G. Mm -hmm. um, people are, or some people are very afraid of, or, or were at one point anyway. Um, so I thought that was one thing that I could use to kind of explain why communications and technology had kind of regressed so much in the world of the book. Right. And the thing too is, there's a, another, I guess it's a recurring thing throughout where you've got goodness being subjugated to turn into into a, a tool a weapon because the whole idea of of the word conceptually is really cool you know being able to do that you could do some good stuff there but it was weaponized and just that like you see that happening i don't know if you have any specific instances of that 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 were the inspiration for doing that so How'd that whole thing come up in the first place of the word? I guess it was a way of kind of literalizing the idea of language as power. Um, as, as you might have noticed, I'm Welsh, um, <laughs> which means that you, you grow up immersed in language politics, whether you want to or not. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, so I've always been very interested in that idea of language and narrative and who controls it and what that says about the world and who has the power. So yeah, that that was kind of what I wanted to explore with the the superpower of the word, which um, I don't think it's a spoiler to to explain what it is. It's um, the, a small group of young people have this ability to use a kind of tone of voice to force people to obey them. Sounds kind of like Twitter. Yeah. Sounds kind of like well, Facebook, yeah. Instagram, TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, 
Absolutely. And yeah, those things can be obviously used in really good ways for people to form communities and draw attention mm-hmm. to, to causes. Um, but obviously they can be used for ill as well yeah. and have been. Yes. So on your, um, on, on the story then, so the whole idea of, of dystopia. So, mm. and like I, said, like I said, a lot of people enjoy dystopian themes because it was, it was very popular. It was like the theme, you know, a decade ago, and mm. it still goes strong. What do you see as the value or for yourself, the use of a dystopian theme? Is that Because I started off saying it's kind of like a cautionary tale, but how do you view what you're doing with this? Yeah, I guess uh, cautionary tale certainly part of it because I think it's um, it's often a, a case of looking at what you see as being wrong about the society we live in today and exaggerating it for for effect or for for a narrative purpose and you know also kind of but also you want you want your readers to be invested in the characters and the story if it's all kind of just well, this is the society and it's terrible. People are not going to necessarily be interested in reading a whole book about that. So um, setting it, using it as a setting, I guess, gives you the chance to uh, explore it in a, a more human and more grounded way. Yeah. So, okay, now you mentioned um, realistic characters and people that you can like, some, you know, different a different range of characters there. So did you... Use any real life people to create the characters, you know, like Michael, Irina, May. I mean, Michael was he was a serious tool, but anything <laughs> <laughs> you said it. <laughs> um, but um, no, I don't think uh, anyone was really based on sort of a person that I've met, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, so much as I guess, kind of lots of little bits of people go into making up a character, don't they? Um, often um so things like um the sort of not so much michael himself but the patronizing church church ladies who surround him kind of is definitely i think a touch of a a certain type of person who um possibly genuinely thinks that they're doing good and and helping you out but uh only if you adhere to their way of doing things yeah that was that was interesting in there just you have on on one level you've got people that appear to be really nice, but then when that one yeah. family take in a desolate pregnant woman and then what they actually did and how they subverted her way of life was um, yeah. Irina, right? Yes. yes. It yeah. was, um, that was quite, that was one of the more disturbing things that they could do it and get away with it. And it was totally legal the way that had been done. And, yeah. and the way that, Everybody in that picture were part of the church. And so there's the police officer and there's the, the midwife and all these people there that just corroborated the story. And so Irina had no say at all. Yeah. It's very sad, but unfortunately, it came across as really real. Thank you. Um, I'm, well, I'm glad it kind of rang true. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, it's partly kind of the fact that Irina being kind of an immigrant and having no family around her is quite in quite a vulnerable position. And then all these other people, they're, they're middle class and they're in positions of power and they know how to work the system. So however hard she tries, ultimately she's stuck. Yeah, exactly. And it costs her dearly. But that's, 
I think, and they'll probably even have more of an impact because the people that listen to this podcast, it's listened to about 120 countries. So it's yeah. going to be a lot more people than just UK and US that are listening to this in Canada. Yeah. Um, but it's all over Europe and um, Africa. I mean, it's just, it's listened to by a lot of people. So I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this too, that that whole dilemma of being a foreigner and the acceptance level that people have. You have some people that will be are very kind. Some people are kind mm -hmm. with their own agenda, which is what happened here. Yeah. And some people are kind yeah. because they're kind. You know, you've got like yeah. uh, May, who even despite everything that happened to her, still mm -hmm. kept that that sense of of rightness about her, and ultimately, you yeah. know, came through. But yeah, just on on all these different levels that you have happen here, it it's something that you know, if somebody from, like I said, the Middle East and all throughout Europe, they can just and they, it's something they can relate to because you pull in, you know, you've got Poland, you've got France, you've got UK, yeah, um, and it's how you deal with that, which is it's a bit different here in the United States. It's not that it doesn't exist; it's just different as compared yeah. to you have very distinct borders that I think even despite the EU, you saw the distinct borders because you've got like the, the, the dilemma that Irene had being Polish, but in, in France, they wouldn't do anything to help because she was Polish, but Polish wouldn't do anything because she lives in yeah. France. So yes. even despite the EU, it's still, you have those borders that, that uh, complicate yeah. life. Yeah, absolutely. So it was, it was very, even though it was like a, the way you put that in there was just like an aside, it still communicated that point that even you have the big, it looks really good, the whole thing with the EU, but when you get down to it, there's still like borders. And uh, yes. it's still going to require the the kindness of, of people that are going to be, that will supersede all this other stuff because it takes, it's, it's really the good heart of, of people that ultimately will make things livable. Yeah, it's, um, with a system, people will still, slip through the cracks and uh, it has to be down to the people working within it to to help doesn't yes so now yourself as an author now your vocation you're, you're a librarian or am i saying the wrong word <laughs> um so i did work in libraries i now work in open access publishing which is the academic kind of side. okay got it all right so i wasn't totally wrong there yeah. so but you're very much um a bookie Yes. The book person, yes, like you said, Welsh, but also yeah. just by your your studies. So, what's your what's been your curve to become an author and starting from you know the get go? Okay, wow. Um, so, I think I probably started storytelling um, when I was I was really small, and um, as as kids are, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> So I, I, I would make up all these dinosaur characters and tell my dad stories about them. Um, and I, I sort of attempted to write quite a lot of books mm -hmm. as a child, um, most of which never sort of got finished. Um, because, yes, again, when you're that age, you have a shiny idea and you write it down and then you have a new shiny idea. Yes. And and I still do that, but mostly I managed to finish them now. This is good. <laughs> yeah. But um I, I was sort of in academia for quite a long time. I did um, a PhD on the work of H.P. Lovecraft and Arthur Machen, um, so kind of classic weird fiction. Mm -hmm. um, so for quite a long time, I didn't write fiction. I wrote academic stuff. And kind of after finishing that, I um, 
sort of was was a bit burned out on it and uh, decided to concentrate on on writing fiction instead. Good. Yeah. So then, how long ago till you actually got like on getting published? Because uh, mm. one thing that people have a problem with is this thing called rejection. So yeah. So how did that go with you, and how did you overcome the the feeling of like, oh, is it really worth it, and that type of thing? So um, yeah, I got sort of shortly after starting, I got a couple of pieces published in things like everyday fiction, you know, short little flash pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it took a long time to kind of get around to the standard of of really being able to publish in professional markets. Um, and in terms of books, I wrote um, a novel, sort of a, a contemporary fantasy novel, before writing the word um, and before writing my other book that I'm working on, which, um, yeah, I had a great time writing it, but um, obviously it just, at that point, it, it wasn't there. So it, it ended up uh, going in a drawer and never seeing the light of day. <laughs> so yeah, a, a lot of the time, the first thing you write may not be the thing that gets published, but that doesn't mean it it didn't mean anything. And um, I think everything that you write is is going to, to go into making you a better author eventually. Yeah, I mean, a writer writes. That's how you become better yeah. at writing. Reading as well. Exactly. You yeah. definitely have to read to well, know. Yeah, absolutely. Which you definitely have already established on your yeah. with your uh, PhD and everything else that you've read a lot. And Lovecraft definitely yeah. is a its own style of of writing. There, absolutely. I think uh, you can certainly get a bit of what not to do as well as what to do <laughs> yes. from Lovecraft. Yeah. Can't you? <laughs> yeah, and we originally met when you um, published your. Story and Writers of the Future, because you had Catching My Death. First of all, it was just it was an amazing story title. So just that in itself, I had to read the story, even though I have I proofread the whole book. But I, you know, I really <laughs> wanted to read the story just because your title was so catchy. So I haven't talked about this very much in in the various podcast interviews. Titles. So yeah. that's like really important. So like you've got the word. And catching my yeah. death. So, what's your like formula? Or what What do you do that you come up with these these the two that, I, that I've read so far? Yeah. Great titles. Thank you. Um, I, I find titles either they they come to mind immediately because there's a phrase or, or a word in the story that's kind of catchy mm-hmm. and it's it obviously sticks out as yeah that's going to be the title or or they're absolutely like pulling teeth and I just end up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> putting a very obvious word or phrase huh. there so um the story about um a woman being being haunted by crane flies and it's called crane flies <laughs> yeah but it's even just the whole thing of of your stories itself the themes of them relate to a i mean it, they themselves you know relate to a that theme to the your, your title anyway i was just it was amazing. Just by the title alone, I wanted to read, and that's and it shows the value of, of putting in the effort to have a good title, not just writing a great story, but a title that would actually make somebody like, well, "What is this?" You know? Yeah. And the word definitely did that too. I I had, I mean, it's general enough that it could have gone anywhere. The word, but then getting into it, yeah. finding out what it was, was fascinating, and then getting into. You, know, you can enjoy the story just on the surface as here's the tale of, of four kids and what happens to them, you know, each of the storyline. Yeah. Now you do a, a a plot format where you have then and now. 
So yeah, um, that's really interesting how you how you tell the story and you put it together and it starts off with little bits, but then by having then and now you immediately pull it out mm-hmm. and you've got the big picture that gradually unfolds and then then by the end it's like you see what happened. So where'd that come yeah. from it as a um, as a, as a form? Um, so I guess in terms of the words, the the original shorter version was what's the first three chapters of the novel with um, Ridian and Jono hiding out in the house and kind of Jono um, Ridian remembering how they got there. Mm-hmm. And kind of after writing that, I um, was kind of inspired by a comment that somebody made on that that kind of shorter version, um, which got me thinking about Rachel, who is uh, one of the other kids. Mm-hmm. Um, in the novel and she's kind of she's the true believer in the word and uh everything it stands for um and she's also kind of the most opaque character i think in the novel she does you never really get her point of view and so that got me wondering where she had come from which drew me back to write Irina's story and then may's section um, before she arrives at the center yeah and when we were editing the novel and putting it together um we did kind of think about moving those sections earlier and having it read in chronological order. But ultimately I I felt like it worked better to have this kind of quite tight focus on the kids at the start and then expand it out and then kind of move back to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think that that gave a bit more of a sort of panoramic view, if you like. Yeah. Because it's kind of like a now, then, now type thing. Yeah. 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 So, because like I said, I'm more, used to either like you said the chronological sequence or yeah someone will do a flashback which is really hard to do effectively you know in the middle of a yeah, story definitely. um and i nine times out of ten i just i don't like that mm. that format so what you did i hadn't i hadn't seen that before so it was like wow this is really interesting how yeah. you did this that was that was that was great yeah so then on the whole thing of of these various characters. So I said they're not people that that are part of your immediate life of what you've done, and they're and none of these things are secretly yeah. Jessica. No, I <laughs> say <laughs> okay. <laughs> so on the on the what you see as the value of fiction, because you've done a lot. Like I said, you've you've obviously studied a lot of nonfiction, and you're kind of like you know yeah. have went through your whole curve of interest and then, okay, I'm, I'm done with it or at least for the time being. Yeah. What's the value that you see of fiction and in a good story? Is it just escapist or is it something else? I think it can be escapist. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with escapism. Sure. Um, we all need a bit, yeah. but um, for me, it's also, it's a different way of approaching working through an idea than writing nonfiction is. And I think it allows you to, to approach things, in a way that kind of straightforwardly just writing nonfiction or thinking about ideas doesn't. It kind of it's a way of thinking about the the human side of things. Mm-hmm. And also obviously we're talking about speculative fiction right. here, science fiction and fantasy. And it yeah, it allows you to to exaggerate the world, to look at the world slightly at a at a different angle, I think. And that's really valuable. Um it, I think it's something we innately need as humans, actually. Yeah. Storytelling. Yeah, and I'll use that as a bridge now to move over to the Writers of the Future program because okay. that was the last genre that Mr. Hubbard wrote in, which is science fiction and fantasy, um, mm-hmm. with which yeah. 
turned out to be the golden age of science fiction. And then he later came out and wrote Battlefield Earth and Mission Earth. So in the purpose of that is to validate and to recognize that genre and the value of the what ifs. And because he always reviewed uh, science fiction as the herald of possibility. And so you see a lot of technology. When at the Rise of the Future events, I don't know how many people you actually met there, but some of our, like, um, the keynote speaker we had this last year was he had just retired as a three-star general starting the Space Force. He was the one that created um, right. the new Space Force. And for him, he said, that's how I got started. That, that was my original inspiration was that we've had many engineers over the years who have been our keynote speakers who said, yeah, you st- I read science fiction. That's what made me wonder how to become an astronaut or how to get, you know, the various devices that are now you see walking around on on Mars, they said it was science fiction that inspired me. So there's that aspect to it. So on Rise of the Future, so you're there for a week at the workshop. Yeah. Anything like it's been a year and a half now because you came out in October, was it, in 2020? No, I was uh, April. Oh, so it was uh, April 2022. So it's just under a year. Okay, good. What for you was the most memorable part or most valuable part of that workshop week? Um. Well, I think, as I think anyone would say, the the ability to kind of learn from the wisdom of Tim and Jody and their years of experience, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean that's absolutely invaluable. It was amazing. Um, yeah. And the the other thing that was great was um, the chance to kind of meet other people who are at the same stage in their careers, and a lot of us have stayed in touch and read each other's work, and it's it's a really supportive community. Oh, that's good to know. Are you still in, Tom, in touch with uh, Katie, the one that did your – I loved her illustration of your story. Oh, it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, no, I guess because she didn't come to the same year yeah. as me. I didn't really get to uh, get to speak to her, sadly. Yeah. But, it's yeah, it's a beautiful illustration. That's awesome what she uh, did. I love it. Yeah, yeah now there's – on the workshop – Anything particular about Mr. Hubbard's, uh, either his essays or his storytelling that you've, you remember that, that sticks with you? Yeah, the, the, obviously the, the way the, the judges in the workshop use the essays, um, kind of particularly talking about tension and the way you can use it to kind of thread a reader yeah. through a book and keep them reading. Um, I thought that was, that was one thing that I thought was, um, yeah, a, a really good part of the workshop. Yeah, I know Tim really enjoyed that. In fact, he did a podcast interview on the article Suspense. Yeah. And how that works. Yeah. Yeah. So how'd you find out about to enter the contest? And are you one of those people that entered once and won? Um, I think twice. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think um, I I came across it. um, Actually, just I think it was via the submissions grinder, you know, the tool that Mm. people use to uh, to find places to submit their work and that popped up so I, I read the website and thought wow <laughs> look at the look at the people that got judging this I've got to give it a try yeah yes. which is great I know we've had um we've had pretty much a winner almost every year from um, from UK and this year yeah. we've uh Sam Parr he's in fact he just also was on BBC because they read the press release yeah. and then um he had a couple articles that came out of him and then somebody one of the uh reporters from BBC read it and asked, can I do an interview with him? So he did, which was great. So we're continuing to grow in there and we got more and more distribution throughout the shops in, in UK. Yeah. And so it's growing. Well, uh, congratulations. Yeah. Well, it's also 
congratulations, Jess, on because um, <laughs> it's it's just one of those things like you know we have you and you had the media that you had and we have Sam and it continues to grow and because of that we are yeah. able to get distribution now and it's, it's so it's it's gradually growing there which results yeah. in more people entering the contest we'll have more people winning so that's yeah. really good on that too and that's people that are aspiring writers in UK it's definitely you know JL George is one of the ones that you need to to follow but we've had other winners as well and if you if you go to writers of the future and just you can search and find people from the UK that um, have won. But so to find it, you just go to risefuture.com. But you said you also searched on. Uh, it was on the submissions grinder, which is, um, I think it's the grinder.diabolicalplots.com, something uh-huh. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's generally useful tool all around as well. Yeah, so. exactly. So now I'm going back to your storytelling. So, again, we've got people that are listening to this that are trying to get their first books out, trying to get in there. So you've gone traditional on getting yeah. an editor, finding a publisher, and doing that route. So how did that come, how'd that come to be? Because that's not usually a success story that the aspiring writers have to be able to tout early on in their careers. Well, it's, um, I guess it, it was a slightly unusual path to publication because it came via the New Welsh Writing Awards, which are obviously available to writers in and from Wales. Um, I'm sure there are other other similar mm-hmm. contests going on in other countries. Um, like Writers of the Future. Yeah, so, yeah <laughs> exactly. But for, for longer work yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so that was, it was slightly unusual in that the book, was, uh, the word wasn't the book that got me my agent. Um, that was a, a different manuscript that I'm, uh, I'm still working on rewriting at the moment. Um, so yeah, it was, it was slightly, slightly unusual path to publication, partly because a lot of Welsh publishers do take non-agent uh, submissions, oh, wow. which is unusual. Very. Yeah. Yes, um, less so the case if you're based in London or somewhere like that, you know. Yeah, um, so yeah, I I don't know if it's a, a path that's for, for everyone, certainly. You've got the trade-off with traditional publishing and having the control, of course, mm-hmm. um, over what you write um, or what you publish. Um, but it's it's worked for me so far. So uh, yeah. Okay, so now, so you do have now traditional publishing, you're going that route um, on this book that that the word as well as the other one that's in the in the works too so that one's yeah. still it's still sold you just need to make the the editorial corrections so that it gets published no it's not sold oh, okay. yet so i'm uh, like editing at the moment so we can go out on sub yeah so uh, so is your intention to stay uh traditional or are you also interested in going indie or self um I would. I don't think I would ever want to go completely indie because I don't think personally I have the marketing now. Mm-hmm. I think you know. I think people perhaps underrate that how big a part of the of the process that is when you're independent. For sure. Sometimes, um, and I think you you obviously need to be prepared to put in a hell of a lot of work to promoting your work if uh, if you're going the indie route. But in terms of kind of shorter work, things like um, stories and novelettes, they sort of long the sort of long short story novelette length is is often hard to to place mm-hmm. because uh not a lot of magazines and things like that publish it so um certainly if i had something that was kind of didn't really fit a, a traditional publishing niche going forward i'd consider 
the indie route. Yeah. yeah, for that. I mean, your publisher was amazingly fast when you mentioned to when we were first discussing uh, doing this podcast and talking about your, yeah. your book. Because I did that, sent that email around about you know the success of the podcast. We've gotten the two awards. Yeah. And if anybody wanted to, then he said, sure. And then the next morning I had the book from your, from the publicist. Oh, wow. It was like, it yeah. was, it was amazingly Brilliant. fast, which was yeah. great, which I must admit isn't as common of, of a feature from the bigger publishers. So that's really good that, yeah. I mean, they're, they're an indie publisher, but they're, they're very fast to, to work and very interested in your career, which is really, really nice to see. Yeah. And it may be all the more interested in wanting to talk to you and talk to you also about this aspect as well, that you done did good getting yourself uh, someone who's interested in, in supporting your career and working with you. Absolutely. I mean, Gwen, um, who edits the New Welsh Review as well as um, the, the books through New Welsh Rebite, was uh, she's a brilliant editor, really enjoyed working with her. And the fact that they're kind of a tiny operation, I think works certainly I felt it worked to my benefit mm-hmm. as a writer because they only publish one book a year. Really? Wow. Double congratulations to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So you get a lot of, uh, a lot of help and uh, yeah. And focus from the publisher in that way. Okay. So then just again, for the sake of, of the writer that's trying to make their break on it. So they came to you because you won the award yeah, so um, publication was part of the the prize for oh, the award. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. So, but yeah, originally they would have um, sort of just published it uh, Kindle only, mm-hmm. just as a Kindle single. But because uh, I think partly they'd had quite a bit of success the previous year with the other winner, Peter Golding, uh, who wrote a book about slate climbing, which is is very good actually. Uh, yeah, and that's that was a bit longer. So I think perhaps that it kind of made them think well yeah we can publish a longer title and and do paperbacks as well mm-hmm. so um yeah kind of benefited from that as well definitely did so i mean that's very good on that so now on back to your storytelling so okay. are you pretty much dedicated or focused on the dystopian or moving more towards um cthulhu <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't I haven't got any plans for for books about squamous albatrosses at the moment, but uh, but you never know. Exactly. Yeah. So the the book I'm working on at the moment is a similar kind of near future setting with um yeah some slightly some slight tweaks from our current world, but whether I'll whether I'll stay on that for the next one or not, I'm I'm not quite sure. Um, have some have some fantasy ideas i'm really kind of itching to write so we'll see so the next yeah. one is is speculative fiction that specifically science yeah. fiction near future yeah so on the ability to tell a story like is it intentional to have the surface story and then various levels below that however you want to go deep into and to try to see relevancy to the world around us you know so is that something that you intentionally do or just kind of came because of the nature of your, the way you like to tell stories? Yeah, I think it just kind of grew up quite naturally, really, because um, I think whatever story idea you tell, you're going to end up weaving your own worldview into it, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of happens unconsciously as much by what you don't put in as what you do. Yeah. But yeah, I think whatever the kind of the main 
idea is that comes up, I'll always end up kind of with some of my own opinions and uh, themes and pet for sure. ideas yeah. yeah, working their way in yeah. there. Yeah. Now, when you put this together, did you have to to go and like delete a whole bunch of stuff? Like when it went to the editor that says, wait a minute, just lose this, lose this because it was too much or to be told, okay, you need to kill some of your darlings, you know, to, or that just come natural for you to, to know how to do that? It's kind of the opposite way around for me. I tend to write quite short um, and then need to flesh things out more later. So um, <laughs> I was getting, uh, and it was the, a similar kind of notes to what I got from Dave on my Writers of the Future story, actually getting notes from Gwen saying, I've no idea what this place looks like. You're gonna, you've got to tell me. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's things like setting and, and texture, yeah, that, that needed to be added afterwards. Yeah, so now on on your storytelling what tips or advice do you have now for the aspiring writer of what you had to go through and what you had to overcome to actually make it to a, to sell a, a a story to tell a story that someone else can go okay this is good you know you have your frustration if i wrote it and like this is really good and someone says yeah. what are you talking about you know and that, <laughs> and to be able to work out from there to get something that that worked so what tips or advice do you have on that um, I think it's really important to write something you're passionate passionate about, which um, sounds obvious. But um, I think if you're just trying to write something to to market or because it's the current big thing um, and your heart's not really in it, it's that's going to come through in the writing. Mm -hmm. um, and if if you don't care that much about it, why should you read us? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not fan fiction what you write. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. So, um, so again, back to the, again, that the question more fully answered on suggestions, advice, and tips for this aspiring writer. Yeah. What have been some of your things that like discouraged you that, and then how you overcame that? Because a lot of times people are aspiring and they just kind of like, they get that rejection or they get someone saying, mm. don't give up that day job. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you, you absolutely have got to have a thick skin, haven't mm -hmm. you? And um, get used to rejection and the fact that however however hard you work on your story, however good the end product is, someone out there is not going to like it. Yeah. Someone's going to come along and said, well, this story was out rob about robots and I wanted a story about dinosaurs. Come on. Um, and you've got you've to learn to take the bits of criticism which are useful and um, let the rest flow off your back, I think. Yeah. One thing that I definitely like to promote, but it's also something that, you know, everybody I talk to usually has a, a perspective about this, but having your own close knit group of nice people, you know, the, you've yeah. got the, what I refer to as the soul suckers that mm -hmm. like to come in and will just like, nitpick you apart and make you feel like it's it's useless trying to do anything anyway so how much has that played a, a role for yourself having good people have a, a core of good people around you that is is so important i think in terms of you know having people that you trust with your writing and people that you know are gonna help you tell the story you want to tell and not try and make it into the story they would tell if they were writing right. it yeah um i think that's yeah it's, it's really important and especially you can reach a, a place when you've been writing or working on something for so long, you you don't know which way's up and you can't tell if it's any good anymore. And at that point, you need to be able to send it to someone and go, 
okay, tell me what you honestly think about this. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so how do you do? You have alpha readers, beta readers, just a a, a writing group. What is it? How do you do it with your with your stories? Um. So, kind of prior to coming to the workshop, I had a couple of um, sort of beta readers who I'm, yeah, who, who I was in contact with, and I still am. Um, and we'll sort of swap chapters or swap stories and read each other's work, um, provide comments, um, sometimes through several drafts. And sometimes it's kind of, right, I need to send this off tomorrow. Can you proofread it for me? It just depends on kind of what stage of the work is at, at the time. And I've, I've, as I mentioned, also stayed in touch with quite a lot of the writers from the, the workshop that I went to. And uh, yeah, we'll quite often sort of pop a note in the group chat and say, I've got a story. Can anyone have a look at it? And every time someone will will come along and volunteer to help, which is lovely. Which is great. So you then don't necessarily have a writer's group you're part of, other than you've got your friends that you've made from the workshop that you, the recipes your workshop, yeah. <clears throat> but also you had people before the workshop, which are still uh, trusted viewpoints for yourself. Yeah, I used um, a site called Critique Match, which um, you can use to kind of match yourself up with other writers who want uh yeah want to kind of swap critiques mm -hmm. um and it's uh, obviously it's on the internet so it could be anyone it's a bit hit or miss but um yeah i find a, a few readers and writers that I, I clicked with well and uh yeah i've have stayed in touch so okay that's good so then yeah. what type of advice do you accept and which type of advice do you say well thank you very much and just let it slide how do you distinguish between what you're going to use and what you don't use um, I think it's kind of it's a case of kind of retaining an idea in your head of of the story you wanted to tell mm -hmm. or the message you wanted to get across mm -hmm. and what you wanted to be saying and figuring out is is this advice helping me tell that story or or is it trying to make it into a different story right. that I I didn't want to write yeah okay um, and go ahead yeah. I think sometimes that will be obvious and sometimes you'll need to spend a bit more time thinking about it and maybe tinkering around and going, well, does that work or doesn't it? And, uh, and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you ever have, get yourself into a, a corner or into a stalemate with what's happening in your story and just ask someone else, like, what do you think so far? Or, or do you just kind of back up and until you're like, Okay, this is where I was last doing well, and then go forward again. Or how do how do you deal with that? Oh, well, that's a difficult one. I <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I can't remember who I heard it from or where I read it, but um, one piece of advice that I've or piece observation, I guess, that I've found um, rings true for me is that a reader or a critiquer can usually tell you when there's a problem with your story um, or where the problem is, but not necessarily how to fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think. In terms of if something's not working, I wouldn't necessarily say what should I do to fix this, but I'd say where where are you losing interest? You know, where are you or where are you getting confused in the story? And the answer to that question will quite often give the answer that you need to uh, to fix Good. it. Yes, one thing AJ Budras, Algis Budras did. He was the first coordinating mm -hmm. judge for the contest. Yeah, he would read a story, and the point that he was bounced out was okay. Look, I just. I just lost interest right here. He'd be reading along and at yeah. a certain point, it's just like, okay, I'm out of the story. And that's who's saying back, okay, good. So this is where you lost me. And yeah. that would sometimes yeah. help the writer to get back to it. Um, did you find it difficult to to kill off any of your characters? Is that, or is that just something that just, it made sense? And in real world, nobody 
or you never have everybody lives happily ever after. Exactly. Yeah. It um, made sense that, you know, not everybody was going to make it out alive. Um, and yeah, it, I don't really struggle with, uh, with killing people off. Cause, cause they're not real. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, the, so yeah, cause that's sometimes people have a problem with the term killing, killing off your darlings, you know? So, yeah. I mean, it's easier to confront, you know, killing off, a secondary or tertiary character, but when you have a, a main character, it's yeah. like, really? But yeah. I mean, that's also, well, that, that, that makes a lot more angst in the story too. It does. I've got, um, I have got one story. Um, It's nowhere near finished yet, but where I know one of the main characters is going to die at the end. And I've, I've, I've already written like a little, a little coda where he comes back to life and that's not going to be in the story, but you know, it's in my head. So, I, so it's okay. you know, in my head, he's fine. So it's, it's fine that I killed him off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in Herbert's story, Battlefield Earth, there's a whole race that's killed off by the, the cyclos and they're the ones that create the, um, the learning machines. They're the ones that create all those uh, right. teaching people how to, you know, learn different languages. And he wrote a note, which we, which we published in, the, in the 2016 edition, which were handwritten notes. And one of them was like, yeah. there were some of them that were found in this other planet. And so they're brought back to earth and they're given all types of restoration stuff. And it's like, okay, good. Cause they're really good people. And you just, <laughs> you know, hate seeing them. Like they're such nice people, what they did there. And they're so, yeah. you know, so nice. So it didn't make it in the book, but it's now, it's one of the author notes. So maybe it's not dissimilar. What you just said there is like, okay, you've got this coda. You got something to say, okay, good. Yeah. So he's dead, but he's not really dead. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, what's your writing schedule like? Because you've got a regular, is your day job now as an author or is you still write, you still no. work? And... Yeah, I have a day job. So um, I'm, I'm quite lucky in terms of uh, I work compressed hours. So I get a day a week where I just write and I work, I just works slightly longer hours the rest of the week um and obviously if you've got an employer that's willing to do that then uh, then More i highly recommend too, it yes. um, yeah <laughs> but yeah I've, but you've got to protect your writing time i think yeah. it, it can be very easy to kind of sort of think oh well you know it's not that's not my day job so um it, it's free time and uh, if someone invites me to go do something else or wants me to go do something else i'll go do that but uh no you've got to uh you got to take it seriously. Yeah, I agree with that. So now on, so you say writing time. So let's, because different authors have different definitions for writing time. Because yeah. is research part of writing time for you? Yes. So how does it go? Yeah, like, what's your be. ratio of like research, working out? And also, do you like, do you flesh out each chapter first? Or you do the beginning, end, and then just let the middle go as it goes to get to the end? Or how does that work for you? Oh, so um, is this the the plotter or pantser question? Yeah, or in between, <laughs> yeah, hybrid. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm um, I'm a pretty strict plotter, certainly initially when I'm starting, um, and sometimes as I write, I'll end up going off in a slightly different direction. But um, yeah, I I kind of need a, a framework, a skeleton to kind of flesh out as I write. I think so, Tim uh, Powers yeah. is definitely like that too. He definitely yeah. plots the whole thing out there with his three by five cards. So how do you? How do you do your thing? Is it to have your different sections and be able to move them around? And um, no, I usually plot in quite a linear way. So I just have a, a page a chapter and and go through and um, kind of sketch out what's going to happen in each chapter. And 
might switch them around at the end if uh, if something's not working. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, certainly when I'm writing the first draft, it's pretty start to finish. I get it. So yeah. when you, but do you have the, do you know the beginning and end and then work out the, or do you just write and takes it to the end? Um, usually I know the end. Yeah. Sometimes, occasionally I don't because I get too excited about the beginning and start plotting <laughs> it. It's <laughs> so like with the word, did you know how it was going to end and then you worked towards it or how'd that work? So I guess that, that was a slightly unusual one again, because it took shape in two parts. Uh-huh. So the first one, the kind of the first version, which was the, the nov- novelette version. Yeah, the, the ending was the clearest thing in my head from the start. Um, and then as I kind of fleshed out around that, like sort of each each section had its own ending, I guess, but I wasn't quite sure which order they were going to exist in the book at the time. But um, yeah, ultimately they, they ended up in the order in which I wrote them. So yeah, so maybe I did know the end really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it was good too, because it was, I mean, the whole theme of that you address, it's dystopian, but the end, you yeah. know, you've got that uptick that's like, okay, you know, in the end, humanity prevails and with May and coming in and with Irina, that with her, that's kind of like Irina yeah. finally says, okay, yeah, maybe I will, you know, where she's just mm-hmm. all of a sudden things, there's that silver lining that shines at the end. That's no matter how dark a cloud can be, a silver lining can always be made to exist. Yeah, I think it's kind of, okay, they're not destroying the dystopian regime and saving the world, but that doesn't mean that the the friendships they've formed and what they've done to support each other is meaningless. It still matters. Exactly. I think that's important because there can be a sense of futility when you see things going on and just like, I, and that's part of what it does too. It beats you down thinking there's nothing you can do yeah. about it. You know, and that's what definitely was, yeah. you know, and that whole thing that was happening in, in the UK at that point, there's nothing you can do about it anyway. But these guys are trying, but at least they accepted that they didn't have to totally buy into it and just succumb. Yeah, absolutely. Which is good. A relief. Yeah. There's hope for us <laughs> after all. <laughs> Let's hope <Yeah>. so. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of your future as an author, so you've got this one book you're in the middle of. So is your intention to go to becoming full-time author where that becomes what pays your your rent and everything? Or is that, is that your ultimate goal to hopefully build to that? And that's the dream, yes. But um, if uh, if it doesn't end up um, going that way and I, I keep the day job and keep writing at the same time, I'll be happy with that because the main thing is just that I get to write. Which I think that's important too for – and this will be like the last area to get into before we make sure you tell people how to find your book and find you. Yeah. Um, your drive, your purpose as, as an author. What value do you think that has to anybody as, as a writer – to ultimately overcome and make it is is your purpose and drive because that you can tell a good story is fine. A lot of people can do yeah. that, but it's the purpose and drive to push that. So talk about that, please, a little bit you know, for yourself how that plays out. So I, I think the reason I write ultimately is because the story's in my head and I need to get it out, and that's it. And uh, yeah, it's it's something that you probably. If you have it, if you have, feel the same thing yourself, you recognize that and you go, yeah, that's why I write too. I have to. I don't have a choice. <laughs> you know, um, Which is a great answer. Yeah. That's something I think that people need to not resist, you know, actually do. Yeah. Um, in terms of, 
So I've got a story. I really want to tell it. I don't know how to do it. I mean, obviously we have, we yeah. offer the the free online writers of the feature workshop at writersfeature.com. Yeah. But any other tips you've got for a writer on helping him to realize that, that urgency of, of telling my story? Um, let's say when you're writing your first draft, give yourself permission to be a bit rubbish. <laughs> because the important thing is that you have something to work on. Um, and if you kind of hold it in your head and you keep turning it around and you're going, oh, I'm not sure if this is going to be right. I'm not sure if it's going to work. You will never write it and you'll never make it better. So you, you have to get it down and not worry too much if you've got some some clunky phrasing or a bit of a plot hole, um, because you can go back and you can make it better and you can polish it. That's good. Yeah, I interviewed um, two weeks ago a girl, Rebecca Hardy, from. Um, London, who wrote her first book on her cell phone on the tube going back from her home, except it was a smaller than this. Oh, wow. She, she, she wrote <laughs> yeah. her book on her telephone, commuting oh, wow. back and forth. She said, I had to. I just, I said, I'm, I'm actually pretty good at yeah. typing. So I just did it there. I said, I'm never going to do that again. But that's how I did my, I just, I yeah. had to write my story. I have huge respect for yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. So that was definite yeah. uh, a dedication to be able to do that. Yeah. So now on your, on your uh, book, so the word and uh so there that it's by jl george so how does somebody find it and where do they go to find it uh so they can find it on amazon um of course uh if you're in the uk you can find it at um waterstones or your local indie bookshop please support it if you have one um yeah oh you can also go to the the new welsh review website and uh, and find the links on there that's great and how does somebody find you where do they go for that because there's there's multiple at least at least one other jessica george or jl george yes yeah that's why i'm jl and not jessica yes, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um so i have a website which is www.jl-george.com you can also find me on twitter at jl george writes or on mastodon at jl george at toot.wales good and um you can also find her on writersthefuture.com with her book with her story in writers the future volume 36 uh, which is like i said how we originally met and um catching my death which is another like it's an amazing story it was the first place uh winner there for volume 36 so that's another that's shorter fiction um so that's another good one to be able to meet uh, jl george as an amazing author and one to definitely look forward to reading more of your work Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Jess. Thank you, John.